Well, good morning. Hope you had a great Christmas and New Year's uh, time to connect with family and friends. We, we enjoyed it as our family as well. I thought since it's the first Sunday of the new year, 2016, we would kick off the year with a standalone sermon. Next week, we'll be starting a new sermon series based out of one of the greatest chapters of the Bible, Romans chapter 8. We're calling it Grade 8, and we're going to spend several weeks in it. But today, I thought it would be appropriate for us to have a standalone sermon and begin with this question for the year. What do you think about when you think about God? What image, in other words, comes to your mind? Do you think of a, a, a wonderful great-grandfather in the sky who loves you no matter what? Do you think of a, a cosmic cop who is always watching diligently to see who breaks the law and then hands out uh, consequences accordingly? Do you think of a celestial Santa Claus who gives people what they ask for if they're good? Maybe you don't think of a person at all. Maybe you're kind of in the Star Wars frame of mind and you think of a powerful force, a presence that pervades the whole universe. Or perhaps maybe you've been watching too many movies and you think of Morgan Freeman in a white suit. Years ago, a great Christian thinker named A.W. Tozer said this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Let me repeat that. What comes into our minds is the most important thing about us when we think about God. It makes a difference, in other words, what we think about God. Do we think about God as being angry or, or kind? Do we think of him as distant, way up in the sky, far from our world, or near? Do we think of him as just, as a judge, or compassionate and forgiving? Is he personal? Is he ethereal? When we think about God affects every part of our lives, our, our outlook on life, our view of other human beings, our response to difficulty and disappointments, the inevitable ones that come in life, our sense of meaning and morality and purpose. What do you think of when you think of God? Christmas break is basically almost over for college students and college classes will be starting up soon. And for students in college, it's a, it's a, it's a very pivotal time in their lives. It's formational. It's challenging. Professors and other students, class material, new social experiences, all these things combine to cause them to step back at some point and look at what they believe and why they believe it and how what they believe should influence their lives. In other words, they're putting into place their worldview. And usually at some point, a student's childhood beliefs and values are going to be put to the test and they will face questions that are not easily answered. I heard about a pastor who had a conversation with a student like this. The student was trying to sort through things, and he said to the pastor, I just want to know what is absolutely true about God. What can we count on no matter what? That's all I need to know. Don't we all need to know that? No matter what our age is, no matter what circumstances we are in life, we all know there are certain questions that will never fully be answered. In this life. And we know that doubt and mystery at certain points are part of the journey of faith. But we long to know, we need to know what is absolutely true about God. What can we count on no matter what? Well, when you survey the Bible, you find there are many words and pictures that are used to describe 
God. Many of them are word pictures, things like shepherd or shield or king. In the Psalms, it speaks of God as a as a like a mother hen, hen who shelters children under her wings. Other places, it speaks of God as a jealous lover or husband. There, there are countless images that are used to try to portray to us this incredible, immense, beyond our description and comprehension God. We can't delve into all of them, obviously, this morning. And what we're going to say today is not does not in any way encapsulate the only things that we can know about God that are absolutely true and that we can count on. But we're going to focus on a couple of things that for me have been very personal and very helpful uh, throughout my life. And the image I want to focus on today is God as rock. Now, like most little boys growing up, I loved rocks. We would go on vacation in Colorado to visit my mother's family and we would, we would hike and we would always inevitably, my brother and I especially, we would look for rocks that we could climb on, you know. Or we would go to a lake and we'd look for rocks we could pick up and have a skipping contest. Or on the farm, after the BBs ran out of the BB gun for target practice, you'd pick up rocks and see who could hit the targets, who had the best arm and the best aim. You'd go into tourist, traps, uh, tourist trap stores in the mountains. They always have rocks for sale, right? Polished, different colors and shapes, shiny. You pay money for them. Rocks have have always kind of interested in me. And for some reason, God as rock has been a primary image in my life. So the two passages, you probably picked up on this already. The two passages that we read just a minute ago out of Deuteronomy 32 and out of Psalm 31, both deal with this image of God as the rock. So if you would, you can either turn to Deuteronomy 32 or we're going to read it. It's going to be on the screen again in just a minute. You can look at it up here. Uh, but a little bit of background for Deuteronomy 32. Um, the people of Israel have been in slavery for several hundred years, and they've been surrounded by pagan gods and pagan traditions, uh, pagan people with only stories and traditions from their forefathers to hang on to. But now, for the past 40 years or so, in a time called the Exodus, they've been wandering through the wilderness. It's the time between the time when they were delivered from slavery in Egypt, but it's before the time when they get to go into the promised land. And so they've been wandering through the desert, and God has been active. He's been revealing himself to them. Time and again, he delivers them through the Red Sea. He brings water from a rock when they're thirsty. He brings uh, manna from heaven for them to eat, several other things that he did. He also revealed himself through the giving of the law to Moses at Mount Sinai, which included, of course, the Ten Commandments, and, and uh, as well as all the other guidelines for faith that God gave the pe- people for life, for faith, and for life with God and each other. So that's the setting. And now in Deuteronomy 32, it's near the end of Moses' life. He knows his life is coming to an end. He knows his time as a leader of Israel is going to come to a close. And before he departs this scene and leaves these people in the capable hands of Joshua, his second in command, he wants to drive home some fundamental truths about God, about his character, and about his work. So he gathers the people before him, he reviews the law with them, and afterwards he breaks into a song, a song of praise, which is called the Song of Moses. And a couple of verses we just read are from that song. Let's pick it up. I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Oh, praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock, his works are perfect, and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. Now Moses uses quite a few words here to describe God in just a couple of verses. He tells us that God is great. 
He's perfect. He's just. He's upright. He's faithful. And he does no wrong. Pretty good list, right? It seems that enough would be uh, alone would be enough to praise God and to trust him. But after offering this long list, Moses then adds one more thought. He tells us that God is the rock. Now, what does he mean by that in particular? And why does he find it necessary to add this characteristic to this already impressive list of attributes about God? Well, let's take a look at this image of, of a rock for a minute, okay? How would have ancient people thought about a rock? Well, we know that the ancient people in particular, rocks, not talking pebbles and stones, but rocks, big rocks, boulders, rock formations, those things were immovable. And they would have instantly thought of the, the massive boulders and towering stone, stone, stone formations they would have come across as they were wandering through the desert on their travels. Those rocks did not move. There were no bulldozers to plow them out of the way. There was no dynamite to, to blow them up. They did not move. They did not change. Now, no doubt during their wandering in the 40 years, they would have kind of repeated some steps once in a while because the area isn't that large. They would have wandered through places they had been before and certain things would have changed. Sand dunes would have shifted. Trees would have grown up or withered away. Stones or pebbles would have been washed away in a flood. Streams maybe would have dried up or maybe they were at flood stage because of rain. But the rocks did not change. They were just the way they were when they last had passed through. As I said, I've, I've kind of liked rocks. When I, when I hike or camp, I like to climb on rocks. I'm going to show you a couple pictures of, of rocks I've been to. The first one, I did not climb, okay? <laughs> this is Haystack Rock. Maybe some of you might recognize this. It's on Cannon Beach, uh, uh, south of Portland a ways. Beautiful area, a be- famous, famous rock. Next one I've actually been on several times. This is called the Crags, okay? It's south of, kind of uh, west of, excuse me, west of Pikes Peak and, and south of Colorado Springs. It's a trail you can do fairly easily with a family. I've done it probably three or four times at least. Beautiful area. You can see for miles and miles and miles. Moses said that God is like a rock. Dependable, always there, always the same, completely trustworthy, And though times may change, though the world changes, though people change, though we change, God does not. He's the rock. And so when Moses adds the word rock to his list of wonderful adjectives to describe God, faithful, good, just, upright, perfect, great, does no wrong. When Moses adds the word rock, he's saying that not only are these things true about God, but they are always, always true about God. Everything else in life changes, right? Governments rise and fall. Careers advance and falter. Our health improves or declines. People live. People die. Life is unpredictable. Friends move on. Circumstances change. But God is the rock. You can count on him. In fact, we're told we can build our life on him. That's my first thought for you as we start 2016. Because God is the rock. You have a firm foundation upon which to build your lives. That's what Moses was saying here. His people are preparing to enter the promised land and he's reminding them, he's encouraging, he's challenging them to build their homes, their cities, their nation, their lives, their families on God and his word and his laws. Why? Because God would always be good and his laws would always be right and just 
and he would be the immovable, unchanging, unshakable foundation for their lives. Years ago, Ma Dillon sang, How does it feel to be on your own? No direction home like a rolling stone. Sometimes our lives feel like that, rolling here and there. And we have seemingly little control over the changes that happen in our lives. But God, the Bible tells us, is a solid rock. In the words of Larry Norman, one of the first contemporary Christian musicians, Jesus is the rock that does not roll. Now, I really never made the connection before to this text, but I wonder if Jesus had this text in mind when he told the parable about the wise man and the foolish man. Remember that story? In Matthew 7, Jesus tells a parable about a wise man who builds his house on a rock and a foolish man who builds his house upon the sand. The point Jesus was making was that you can build your life on something that's permanent and eternal and solid, or you can build your life upon something that is changing and fluid and untrustworthy. If you grew up in the church and you went to Sunday school as a kid, you might have learned this story. And there was a song that went along with it. Remember that? The rains come down and the floods go up and the storms come down and the wind beats on that house, but the house on the rock stands firm. It had its foundation on the rock. We'll show you a couple pictures of houses that are built on rocks. There's one there. That's kind of an impressive house. I'm guessing they use a boat to get to that one. Uh, next one, I don't have. I have no idea why they built it there. But you see, there's a little tram, a little t- tram they kind of use to get across to that place. I have. It's just unbelievable. And this next one is kind of cool. It's actually built into the rock. That's like the house and the rock are 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 one. Think about how long that rock has been there. Chances are it's going to be there for a very, very long time. That's a firm foundation. So let's relate to, this, to our lives as we start the new year. If, if you could take a picture of your life and, upon, and, and you, could, you could portray that, what you build your life upon, what would your foundation be? Would, you, would it look like that? Every aspect of your life, your marriage, your, your kids, your relationships, your work, would it look like that built upon God's character and his word and his work? Your home, your career, your marriage, your reputation, your retirement, does it rest on the unchanging ways and truth of God? You know, there's a lot of things we can build our lives upon, right? Money, material possessions, experiences, achievements, education, talent, pleasure, not bad things in and of themselves, but those things are fleeting and they're fragile. They're here one moment and gone the next, washed away by the storms of life. Jesus says in Matthew 7, whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. So the first thought is because God is the rock, we have a firm foundation for our lives. But there's a little bit more to this word picture. So let's look again to another book of the Bible, Psalms, uh, to another writer who describes God as a rock, but with a slightly different point of view. It's, It's the author is David in Psalm 31, the passage that was read by Katie a few minutes ago. And since it's a short passage, I'll read it one more time. In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness. Turn your ear to me. Come quickly to my rescue. Be my rock of refuge, a strong fortress to save me. 
since you are my rock and my fortress, for the sake of your name, lead and guide me. Free me from the trap that is set for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Redeem me, O Lord, the God of truth. Now, David obviously wrote this psalm in a time of trouble or looking back and reflecting upon a time of trouble. We don't know what kind of trouble it was. I mean, it could have been there were armies advancing against Israel. It could have been that there were problems in his own house. There could have been rebellion like the time when his son Absalom drove him out of the temple and out of Jerusalem. But, but regardless, it's pretty obvious it was a time of trouble. And in this time of trouble, David turns to God for help and protection. And twice he refers to God as his rock, his refuge, his fortress. So what was David thinking of when he uses this imagery, this concept? Well, again, if you're traveling and making your way through a desert or wilderness, um, rocks would often be a welcome sight. For some of us, if you're a farmer, a big rock in the middle of your field is not a good thing. But if you're traveling through the desert, a rock could be a pretty welcome sight. A rock, if it's big enough, can provide shelter from the hot sun. Or perhaps there's a ledge or an opening where you can spend the night. If there's vegetation around those rocks, it might mean that there's water there, like a pool or a spring. If you're being chased by an enemy, rocks could provide a hiding place or at least keep the flying arrows off of you. If the rock was set up high enough, it becomes an, a natural fortress, uh, something you can defend easily, an vantage point from which you can watch the movements of your enemies and, and repel their attacks. So David would have had plenty of experiences with rocks as refuges. Remember his early years? Before he becomes a king, King Saul is jealous of him and begins to pursue him and wants to kill him. And David and his men who come around him, they, they take refuge in rocks and caves around Jerusalem. And for a time, he and his men even found refuge in a place called the Cave of Adullam. Here's a picture of it. You can see the kind of the opening there, kind of hidden away. And if you go inside, I've seen pictures. It's, it's supposed to be a, it's a big chamber, a big place inside. So David would have thought of rocks symbolizing strength and protection, in particular God's protection, the closest thing for us maybe that would come to mind would be the rock of Gibraltar. There's a picture of it. This is off the southern tip of the Iberian Peninsula, almost 1,400 feet high above sea level. And for centuries, it stood as a fortress to guard the shipping lanes and entrance into Europe. It's an unassailable fortress. So when Moses thinks about God, he has in mind a foundation stone, immovable, unchanging. When David thinks of God as a rock, he has in mind a fortress, invincible, a place of protection and strength. That's my second thought as we start 2016. Because God is a rock, he is a stronghold in time of trouble. You know, it's interesting how many times characters in Scripture turn to the words of Psalm 31 for protection. For instance, when Jonah finds himself in the belly of a great creature and he's repenting of his disobedience, he clings to words from this very psalm, verse 6, I will trust in the Lord. When Jeremiah the prophet was thrown into stocks for preaching God's truth, he takes courage from words that come from this very psalm. And when Jesus himself is hanging on the cross for our sins, he turns to the psalm, verse 5, and says, Into your hands I commit my spirit. They could kill his body, but he knew his soul was safe with God his Father, the rock. Now, an interesting thing about this image of God as a rock, it assumes that we are going to be in trouble at different points in our lives. I mean, you only need a fortress if you're under attack, right? 
you only need a hiding place to somebody who's chasing you. So when we say that God is our rock and our fortress and our refuge, we're not saying bad things won't happen to us. We know from life experience that's not true. We're saying that bad things will not ultimately defeat us. They won't have the last word. They won't conquer us because God is a mighty fortress. He's our rock. It's not a promise of physical protection necessarily. It's a promise of spiritual security. When we think about what the Bible, it describes Satan as the enemy of our souls, that he's always prowling about, always pursuing, always wanting to rob us of peace and joy, always trying to drive a wedge between us and God, trying to sow seeds of of fear and doubt and guilt and anxiety. But ultimately, Satan will not succeed because the Bible says that God is our rock. So practically speaking, when we find ourselves in financial trouble, we take refuge in a God who knows what we need, who can grant us contentment and peace, whether we have much or little. Or when we're in relationship trouble, when our heart is breaking and people that we love disappoint us or hurt us, God will protect us from bitterness and vengeance and anger and isolation. Or when we find ourselves in spiritual trouble because we have, we have sinned and wandered from God and we find ourselves in a dark place of our own doing or circumstances, we can look to God who forgives us of our sins and failures and restores us to relationship with him. The God who's always there, always watching. And when we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, We can look to God knowing that he has conquered the greatest and last enemy, death, and that he can bring us safely through to the other side. As the contemporary hymn says, No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. For I am his and he is mine, and here in the power of Christ I stand. There's something curious about the phrasing of these verses. David says in verse 2, Be my rock of refuge, as if he's asking God. And then in verse 3, he says, You are my rock and my fortress, as if he's declaring something. Which is it? Well, it's both. David wants to know by experience what he believes by faith. You see, it's not enough to know that our God is a rock when we find ourselves in trouble. We have to actually take shelter with him and in him. We have to trust him, to depend upon him, to open his word and look for wisdom, to fall to our knees in prayer and ask for his help and guidance, to go to his house and worship him, to sing his praises, to look to the heavens and look for the God who is always there. When we do that, we will know by experience what we believe by faith, that God is a stronghold in times of trouble. A couple of years ago, uh, actually, several years ago, probably 10 or 15, my family and I rented a, a cabin at the, the base of the Sangre de Cristo Mountains. It had, uh, I love getting away with my family, particularly in Colorado. I love to hike and, and do things like that. Um, but this year, I really, really needed to get away. It had been a tough year in many ways. A lot going on at the church, a lot going on at home, other commitments. And I was, I was worn out physically, emotionally, spiritually. Uh, I was irritable. Uh, I was impatient, lacking joy. I was anxious. I was stressed out. I was empty. I was, I was worn out. And for whatever reason, whenever I go to the mountains, they have kind of a therapeutic effect on me. As, as always, some people kind of connect through different ways with God. But for me, being in the outdoors and, and looking at his creation and, and using my body and, and just thinking about things, 
it really has a way to a, a way of rejuvenating me. And 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 we had this small A-frame we rented. It had a deck under which a small stream flowed, and 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 on the other side of the stream there were some aspen trees, a little opening, a little path that led through them. And when you walk through that that opening on that path. It opened up in this huge meadow with flowers and, and a fantastic view of the mountains right in front of you. And every morning I would wake up early. I don't know why, but in the mountains I always do. And I, I walked through that opening and I, I turned my eyes to the mountains and it would travel up past the, the, the tree line and then up to the top, solid granite, massive rocks that have been there long, long before I was ever born and long will be there long, long after I'm no longer here. And for whatever reason, that was very comforting to me, very healing for me. And, and every morning, I, I, I chose a passage to, to use and to read and to think about. And it's one of my favorites from Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore. The Lord is the rock. On that vacation, the Lord reminded me that the God who is with me in Kansas is with me in Colorado or Minnesota or wherever I may roam. And that the God who saw me through the last year would see me through the next and the next and the next and all the ones after that. And that these attacks of fear or anxiety or guilt or insecurity were just that, feeble attacks of the enemy to rob me of joy and peace and strength. But God is the rock. And I came to know, and I continue to come to know, by experience, what I believe by faith. I don't know how you feel about rocks. You may think of them as just something big and ugly, something to be walk around. But I hope that the next time you see a huge boulder in the mountains, or you're on a shore and you see a rock, or on the coastline and you see some sort of cliff or a rock, that you remember that our God is like that. That he's a solid foundation for your life. And that he will be a stronghold and a refuge, a fortress for you when the inevitable storms of life come. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word that we can build our life upon. Thank you, O Lord, that you, amongst many, many other things, are the rock. That in a world that constantly changes, in a world where we, we ebb and flow, Lord, that you are unchanging, that we can trust in you. But just because you're unchanging doesn't mean you're loving, not loving. Um, even though you do not change, Lord, your heart is full of compassion and mercy. And your heart is for us. We thank you for that, Father. Help us as your people in the coming <laughs> weeks and months to come in this year. Help us to build our lives upon the foundation of you, your character, your works, and your word. And help us, Lord, in times of stress or, or trouble, to know by experience what we believe by faith, that you are our rock, our fortress, and our refuge. Amen.